Well, good morning, Disciples Church. A couple days away from the new year. What a great advent that we had to celebrate the birth of Messiah, the birth of our Savior and Lord, the great gift given at Christmas. I'm excited to uh, jump back into our sermon series through the letter of James and the final stretch of this series that we're calling Faith at Work. Uh, On our opening day of our new campus in early June, we began preaching through this letter of James, and what a joy it's been. Uh, If you are just joining us in this Christmas season, and now as we look to the new year, uh, I encourage you to go to our website, find uh, the sermon uh, series there on the the website, and go to the beginning uh, and, and start fresh and just some extra time in your week to put the podcast on and get your Bible out and you know join us in the fullness of what we've done in chapters one through four. Um, it's a, it's a, a joy to hear testimony of people who utilize the podcast, um, some who are not part of our congregation but uh, enjoy tuning in every week. You know, some couples will make uh, a regular evening in their week to sit together with the Word and uh, to, to listen here uh, to what we're preaching at Disciples Church and both locally, nationally, even internationally to, to hear the blessing of how the word is, is affecting people around the world has been a joy. And so it's a great tool and, and I encourage you to use it, maybe even go back and uh, in some extra time, extra study time to go back to our series through John or uh, Psalm 23 or some other series that we've done uh, in the past and enjoy that time in the word. As we start into chapter 5 today, I want to remind you uh, of some of the unique attributes of the letter of James. Uh, It has been compared to um, much of the Old Testament wisdom literature, like Proverbs, uh, because of its direct instruction and counsel about wise and holy living. Um, This is what makes James one of the most popular books of the New Testament. Even though it's brief, only found on three pages in the normal size Bible and five chapters, it's packed full of good counsel and help. Um, It's very practical. Uh, James contains a higher volume of imperative verbs than any other New Testament book. Imperative verbs give a a clear instruction and command, uh, making clear uh, what is to be done. And this is a helpful uh, thing for us to have that clarity uh, when someone is looking for clarity on how to live the Christian life and what our faith at work looks like we have a great source in the letter of James James chapter 1 verse 1 reveals to us the the audience to which James is writing he he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion uh, unlike many of the uh, letters in the New Testament which are written uh, to specific churches um, the, this is written to 12 t- tribes, the representation essentially of the Jews who had been saved, a general Jewish Christian audience, Jewish Christians, those who have converted to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as Lord and Savior. Um, the fact that the audience is dispersed simply means they're not in their homes. They've experienced persecution and hardship in the times that they're living, which explains much of why they're struggling or suffering, um, being oppressed, as, as it's spoken of in the early chapters. 
Uh, James testifies that, that rich people were, were often taking many of these people to court. Uh, as we saw in James chapter 2, verse 6, uh, that many of these people were scorned for their faith, as we read in, in chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, there was wealthy landowners taking advantage of them. We're going to see that in today's passage, chapter 5, 4, and 6. Um, the main emphasis of James, though, it, it, through again and again we see it, is that true saving faith in Jesus Christ is not momentary. It's not a prayer you say and then you move on. It's not a season. It, it, it's a forever change in who you are. True saving faith is a spiritual awakening what was spiritually dead is now spiritually alive. And that faith goes to work. It, it, it is a part of who you are. You live by faith. And it remains at work until God takes us to glory. There is a, a God-given faithfulness to stay the course for those whom God has given true saving faith. There is a, a fight in us to honor God, to live for Him, to correct false living or sinful living to repent from it uh, and, and he perseveres every true believer and that doesn't mean that every true believer won't stumble or struggle but we will finish in faith we'll repent and we'll keep going despite the struggles that we face what we're going to see in these final nine sermons as we preach through chapter five in the new year of 2019 today uh, is a varied application of exhortation uh, that he's going to bring a, kind of a, a shotgun approach to different topics that we'll hit on week by week and see and lift them out and see how these are super beneficial for us in our maturity and faith and life. My prayer as we continue to grow, continue to come to God's written word, that you would be ready to be challenged, to be stretched, to mature in faith. I pray that we would do real business with these areas that James is going to highlight that God has ordained for us in this season to study. I pray that those of you who are without true saving faith, that you would be given eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would see this gospel and it would change you forevermore, that you would repent of your sins and truly believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, live the rest of your days for Him. Today, I will preach from James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. And I'm excited for what God has in store for us. So I want to pray, and then we'll dig in. Pray with me. Father, I, I thank you for this time that you've provided for us to be here, um, to be together, uh, united in, in a desire to know you and worship you, to live for you. I pray for... Um, the, this passage that we're about to study and, and what it means for us, um, how you want to challenge us and grow us and awaken us. And the Holy Spirit would be mightily at work in and through us this, this hour. Uh, we are yours. We thank you for who you are and how, what you're doing. Um, come, Lord Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Jesus begins this next section of his letter with another round of warning and reproof for those 
who live in sinful indulgences. He opens with the words, come now. Other translations say, listen now. This is James' way of saying, don't miss this. He wants his hearers to hear so they can be warned, so that they can repent and honor God with their lives. Or be warned and avoid this kind of sinful living. May it be that for us today as well. He says, come now, you rich. Let me first ask an important question by which we could be led in a misdirection if we don't see this rightly according to all of Scripture. Is James saying that it is wrong or sinful to be wealthy? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Is, are the miseries coming simply because these people are wealthy? Our goal always must be, first and foremost, to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Not with tradition, not with our own preferences or ideas, not with the teachings of fallible man, but with God's holy word. We want God to inform us and direct us on, on these things. We don't want popular culture to inform us or trendy movements to inform us. If we did, we would be very misled. If we relied on popular culture, for example, to inform us, we would say that it is the goal of, of life to make money, to make lots of money, to attempt to be rich. The slogan goes, get rich or die trying. (laughs) To do well in school, to to work hard, uh, to make as much money as possible. Uh, Culture would even say that it's okay to kind of do whatever it takes to outperform others and get to the top of the pile. The culture at large looks up to the wealthy and aspires to have what they have. Uh, This fuels the sin of coveting and and envy. This pursuit has caused parents to miss out on being parents. This pursuit of wealth and money has, has caused marriages to end. People to live miserable lives while they overwork to fulfill what the culture says they should do or what they should have. unbiblical positions have been formed even in so-called churches where preachers teach that God's desire is for you to be rich. We call this the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a sinful and self-indulgent view. Um, And and really self-indulgent through and through. On the other side of the spectrum, you have trendy movements that we see come and go, whereby people will condemn any form of wealth and believe that wealth wealth should be mandated to be redistributed among the masses in order to relieve poverty and create a more fair economy. Unbiblical positions have been formed in so-called churches where it's been taught that any form of wealth or prosperity is sinful in what has been called the poverty gospel. Neither of these, the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel, is what God's word teaches. Consider with me some of what the Bible says about being wealthy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You quickly and flippantly read that passage, you can walk away with a misunderstanding of what it just said. Didn't it say the the root of all evil is money? What does it say? It says the love of money is what is sinful. A sinful craving for indulgence in money is what is sinful. Not money itself. Paul is clear in Romans 14.14 I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That the things of God's creation are not sinful in and of themselves. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not sinful. But the way we can handle and crave money is what makes it sinful. Therefore, the person whom God ordains to be successful and to make lots of money is not in sin, as long as they are not driven by money in a sinful way. God has used those that He's gifted to make good money for generations to accomplish His work and purposes, just as He's used those who He's called to be poor for His holy will to be done as well. In Holy Scripture, God's charge is not to stop being wealthy, if you are, but to steward the wealth in such a way that it honors God and it helps others. The charge is to watch out for your heart, to not be consumed or caught up in your wealth as your hope or your identity, but instead in Christ. The Bible does not condemn wealth, and neither should we. The Bible does not uphold poverty as the pathway of righteousness, and neither should we. We can know that the presence or absence of money is not the way we measure God's blessing. Proverbs 22.2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. God uses both the rich and the poor for his perfect will to be done in this fallen world. Second, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So James is not saying it is sinful to be wealthy. He is speaking about those who sinfully mishandle their wealth and life. James' emphasis is that these people who are rich are not sinful because of their wealth, but are sinful because of their indulgence of life and their handling of their wealth. We're going to see today in chapter in verse 2 and 3, he says that they've hoarded their wealth. In verse 4 today, we'll see that they have defrauded their employees. In verse 5, that they live self-indulgent lifestyles. And in verse 6, that they oppress the righteous. One more general thing about what the Bible says about the wealthy, just by way of quick review, that's worth reminding us this morning before we dig deeper into the text. With access to money comes many blessings. 
But our sin nature means that there are also many temptations to sin in our access to money. We've seen this struggle from the beginning of mankind. Jesus himself warned about how hard it is for the rich man to remain untangled by the trappings that often come with wealth. Luke 18.25, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. While this is not a condemnation on being wealthy, it is a high warning that with wealth comes a great battle to not find our identity or our treasure in it, but in God. We're going to come back to this more in the last section of the sermon, so I don't want to go too far into that point right now. Instead, let us delve into James' warning and admonishment here in the text uh, and see those who sinfully indulge in their wealth and management of it and what is due them because of that. James 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. These who are rich that James is condemning and admonishing are in sin because of their wicked practices and selfish endeavors. James' admonishment of them, it fits his overall theme in his letter. Those who are of true saving faith will put that faith to work and continue in it. In other words, they won't become people who are known for sinful indulgence and manipulation like those James is pointing out here who are instead deserving of God's righteous wrath. Notice James says, they will weep and howl. The word he uses for howl here means wail, to wail. Strong language. This is the only place we see it in the New Testament, but it occurs regularly in the Old Testament as the prophets often used it in describing the reaction of the wicked in the day that the Lord will arrive to bring them condemnation and eternal judgment. It's a picture of intense outburst, of despairing, violent, uncontrolled grief. Wow. An example of this in the Old Testament we see in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Notice here in James 5.1, the word misery is used in the plural. Miseries. You rich, weep, and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is James' way of emphasizing that this eternal judgment Misery is not short-term, but there are many, and it is long-lasting. In verse 2 through 6, James lays forth his case for why these particular wealthy people are unrighteous in their ways and worthy of such a miserable eternity. Look with me first at verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
James' emphasis here is on the hoarding of wealth. This is the sinful practice of making more and more and keeping more and more than you need to provide for your family and to live. Instead, it is stored up or it is put into selfish, indulgent stuff or storehouses. The problem with this is that it's not being used to help others or advance the kingdom. It is selfishly sat on or spent on things that, that rot. As Christians, we are to provide for our families and then advance the gospel, to make disciples unto the nations, to care for the needy. For those who belong to Christ, we are not to amass a fortune or selfishly stash it away without regard for God's purposes for our days in the here and now. God has given us today, called us to make much of His holy name, So let us live for him today. And if he gives us tomorrow, then we will live for him tomorrow. It is our joy then to live open-handedly and to bless others. Our flesh, though, is at war with this. And so we struggle. And the struggle is real. But it's one we must fight. The trappings of our our sinful flesh to, to covet or to envy what others have. I'll often, in counseling young couples, in premarital counseling, I'll love them enough to tell them, if you honor God with your money, if you live within your means, your lifestyle will likely not look like your neighbor's. You won't have what they have. And the reason why is most of your neighbors are living way beyond their means. They are living in mounds of debt trying to keep up with the Joneses, thinking that their satisfaction comes in cars and vacations and and decorations in their home, very rarely do you find people who are debt-free, out of debt, living truly within their means and looking to honor others and and serve others with their money. And so it is a a reality that surrounds us, the temptation to try to keep up and and to be like others and to have what others have. It's it's a, a sinful thing we must fight. Even within the church, even within the, the, the unique and wonderful diversity that is the church, that God will ordain some to have little, some, some to make little, some to make much and to have much, and yet gift us and empower us in other ways with different skills or gifts or opportunities to serve or to raise children or not, or to work certain jobs or be in certain places. The, the way in which God works through our diversity is major. We must, we must be so careful not to let the sin of envy or coveting to plague even the way that we look left and right, the reality of our church. I love the diversity of our church. I love it. For many years, we, we've had regular people who essentially were homeless, had simple means by which they lived, called our church home. And, uh, and, and many people have been some of the wealthiest in our city, be members of our church over the years. And uh, the question is, what are we doing with that? How are we uh, stewarding what God has called us to? Have you ever worked so very hard for something? Logged a ton of hours and saved up and invest a lot of time only to have it then break down on you 
stolen from you. This is a, a gross reality of the fallen world we live in. And another reason why an overinvestment into temporary things is, is a heartbreak waiting to happen because they're temporary. Often in the fallout of these things, you feel despair, let down in a major way. Oh, I could tell stories for days. But one in particular came to mind preparing today's sermon. My mom's brothers growing up were very handy and skillful in construction and in automobile uh, work and wrenching on cars. Uh, my uncles have built some of the, just the craziest and most amazing cars. Uh, my, one of my uncles built a, put the biggest motor he could fit into a VW Bug, and literally no one else could drive it but him because it literally would jump off the road. It was so torquey and powerful. And he would kill themselves in this thing. Um, he cut the roof so he has a really low top on it, actually make the bug look really cool. Um, <clears throat> one of my uncles years ago completely rebuilt top to bottom a Cherry 57 Chevy, maybe one of the most coveted, uh, longed-after classic cars there is, and when done right, or some of, some of some of the highest value. Finished Cherry 57 Chevy, went out to the races one night with his friends, came back to the parking lot, and it was gone. Never to see it again. Um, I, I never got to see it because it's happened uh, before my days. A car that was worth tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, gone. Just done. All those years, all that money, like that, gone. When we make the created things of God our treasure, we set ourselves up for great letdown. To build our lives on things that are temporary to build, is to build our house on the sand, as Jesus would say in the parable when the waves come, the house is destroyed and carried away. All of our hopes and joy and identity are swept away with it. I've seen it, you've seen it, maybe experienced it. Great and successful men and women who have staked their lives in their careers, their money, their kids, their stuff, their looks, only to lose those things by which they've come to live for, to be identified by, to to essentially be utterly ruined, led to despair for some, to addiction, just depression, and even suicide. Here's the thing. While these temporary consequences are real in a fallen world, James' emphasis in this passage is not on the consequences of what we will experience in this life, but the consequences of what we will be experienced in the next. In addition to pointing out that things rot and are moth-eaten and corroded. Their corrosion, he says, will be evidence against them in eternity. He says it will eat their flesh like fire. Strong words. What he's saying is for those who stand apart from Jesus, their sinful overgrip to the treasures of this temporary life, even the good things of kids and family and marriages and Hard work, he says, will be the very means of their suffering for eternity. Almost like a perpetual drowning in the very gold that wants to find them. Strong words by James. 
One sign that these are penalties and sufferings for eternity and not just for the temporary is that gold does not rust, does not corrode. The corrosion James speaks of is metaphorical eating away that will not be experienced in this life but in the next. The fact that the wealth that they live for in this life will testify against them in the next is a way of saying and reminding us that everyone is represented at the judgment seat by something or someone. We will stand before the judgment seat of the Holy God represented by our sin and false idols earning us eternal condemnation or we will be represented by Jesus himself in all of his holy perfection, forgiven of our sin, and graciously given eternal life with God in holy heaven. I want you to make this very personal for you for a moment this morning. What are the things, or the people, or the accomplishments that that you hold up, that you show off to others as a marker of what you've done with your life? house, car, a vacation portfolio, a fit body, good grades, successful kids, a spouse, or you name it. Think about the utter lack of representation that any of these can make for you when standing before the judgment seat of God And what is on display is your lifelong sin as what stands between you and the holy God. None of these will do. Only Jesus. This is why we must only boast in Jesus. Paul says it so well in Galatians 6.14 Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He speaks of a crucifixion that's happened in his life, a a change in the way he held and valued and longed for the things of the world. That there's a surgery that God did on his heart and his mind and his longings for these things that he now longs to wholly boast in Jesus alone. Jesus preached this very point in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, 19-21. It says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I ask you again this morning plainly, where is your treasure? What is so very important to you in this life? Do you have a right grip? on the good things that God's entrusted to you, like money or family or skills? Or do you have an overgrip, a sinful indulgence on these things? 
to the point that they are why you wake up and live. They are what defines you. They are what makes you sing. Are you storing up treasure in heaven by living open-handedly with the things and the people and the skills God's given you? Or are you hoarding these for sinful and selfish indulgence? Look with me at verse 4, James 5, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Again, the injustice of, the injustice of sinful in selfishness is to not pay the worker his fair or agreed upon wage. And this injustice is stored up as an evidence or a witness against this person in the final judgment. These testimonies are before the omnipresent Lord of all creation, who is present in all things. Consider the decisions you make in private in regards to how you pay others or handle money, how you do your taxes or receive handouts from others. There's so many ways our character reflects and honors the Lord in faith or reflects our sinful indulgence and selfishness, thereby making us a stronger case for our guilt and deserved punishment. Notice with me what matters most. What matters most in these things is that the Lord sees them all. He sees what we do. He sees the motivation behind what we do or don't do. There is not a secret from him. There is not decisions in the dark that he doesn't see. So even the decisions we make in private matter and they will testify. They will speak out against who we are. Christian, is your faith at work behind closed doors? When no one is looking, when no one will know the difference, when doing the right thing costs you in the temporary, what honors God and His name forever, who are we really living for, church? Our, our comfort, our personal prosperity, or our Lord? and the good of those that he puts before us. Verse 5, James 5, 5, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The word James uses here for self-indulgent is only used in two places in all of Scripture. One in the Old Testament, one in the New. Consider with me these two verses. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. 
excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor or the needy. In the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, 5 and 6, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. These all speak of a person who lives in sinful, selfish indulgence, concerned only or foremost with their own well-being. The mode of operation is to take good care of me, then maybe the needs of others, or just disregard the need of others. The, the selfish, indulgent widow is dead while she lives, Paul says, meaning she stands in her judgment already. This is the similar wording of James, who says that those who live self-indulgently have fattened themselves for day of slaughter. It's a reference to the day of judgment, the judgment that is upon us. In their sin, they're caught red-handed. The evidence of their crimes is all over themselves. This is their testimony. Their wealth is not used to glorify God in advanced disciple-making, as we're called to. Instead, they're gluttons for themselves and their own kingdoms, first and foremost. Think about the amount of hours and days and time that goes into the things that take so much of our time. The hopes that we build into a home or a vehicle or a certain career or setup. Years, months, weeks, hours, endless, and it can be gone like that. In a phone call, in a moment. And then what? It should cause us to really stop and check how much time are these things really worth? These temporary things, these temporary dwelling places, these, these vehicles that wear out every day versus what I could be doing with these, with these hours, with this time for the kingdom, for this day that God has given me. similar wording Jesus uses in a parable that he tells in Luke 16 about a condemned man and a delivered man. Luke 16, 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. This is a mega theme of the biblical narrative, surely one that God wants us to understand and not miss. To only build this kingdom, to only live for the here and now, to only live for self and to enjoy these things is short. While what that cost is to suffer for eternity. 
Luke chapter 6, 24-25, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You could, you could put biblical clarity on Woe to you who are rich only. In other words, your, your whole identity and happiness and joy is in your wealth. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. For those who give up many things and are generous in the here and now and invest in the kingdom and make their days about the Lord often have little in these days or go without many things that others enjoy. But they are blessed beyond measure in eternity in the presence of God. James condemns the sinfully indulgent in verse 6. James 5, 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The sinful lifestyle of those only concerned with themselves carried into an unjust manipulation of the court systems and other means by which righteous people were falsely condemned or judged in order to preserve the lifestyle of the wealthy. It was a a manipulation of lower class. People who were not willing to cheat or bend the rules were unjustly manipulated by those who were. This kind of unjust activity was rank as well in the Old Testament. For example, Amos chapter 5, verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins for you who afflict the righteous who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. This was happening in James' day as well. We read in James chapter 2, verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? The term righteous man in this text, James 4, 6, is simply someone who is morally upright. Victims of who were defrauded by others, but remained committed to God and trusting in God even when they were falsely accused. This was the emphasis of Peter for the elect exiles. We could fit ourselves into this category still today. 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How can the Christian confident not revile or seek justice to to make justice? Because we understand that justice will have its day in a way far greater than we could ever pour out. We understand 
that there is a judge. And everyone will be judged. We've even seen some of those details here that every thought in the dark will be judged and will act as a testimony. So Christian, do not be undone in justice in this time and place. For God is just. And justice will have its day. So we don't need to pick up the tire iron. We don't, we don't need to sue back. We don't need to, to, to rally and rail. We trust God. We go so far if someone takes our coat to maybe offer them our other coat. Because our hope, our joy, our peace is in the Lord and not in the temporary. Church, which side of this are you on? The sinfully indulgent living of your flesh, manipulating others, hoarding and consuming for self, for you and yours only? Or the righteous who identifies, whose identity is in God, who, who when threatened and treated unjustly does not revile and return, but entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. I pray you are the latter. And if you are the former, the one guilty of selfish indulgence, that you repent for the day of judgment is near. That you trust your life to the one, the only one who can save you from your sins. Peter continues in 1 Peter 2, 24-25, He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer for your soul. I pray you repent and believe in Jesus for salvation, for a new birth, to live for God and no longer yourself. Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For you will, either, you will hate one and love the other. He will either be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Who do you serve? With that, I turn to my final point of application which is how we are to have our faith at work when it comes to money. Number one, that our prayer should not be for riches or for poverty, but for exactly what God would ordain for each of our lives to do His perfect will. That we put away all coveting. You see someone with new nice shoes, someone pulls up in a new nice car, we put away coveting. We put away the envy. The wealthy person envies the person who's not entrusted with much and therefore doesn't have the, the tension and the pressure of running a company or being the president over hundreds of people. Or There's so many ways coveting and envy can go left or right. We put away this over-longing for riches or poverty. We just trust God. I love the prayer of a guru found deep in Proverbs 30, verse 8. He cried out, Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That's it. Number two, if God has ordained that you are wealthy, and I would say many of you to this point in the sermon have maybe considered the wealthy to be someone other than you. And I would argue that probably the large majority of this room fit into the definition of the wealthy. I'm not talking lifestyles of the rich and famous, caviar dreams and yachts and crazy. I'm talking about provisions that are more than you need to live. If you're thinking, ah, I'm not rich, consider with me a couple markers that might help you to see this differently. <clears throat> Raise your hand if you own a car or have possession of a car that's yours, however, right? 88% of Americans possess a car. Some more than one. I, didn't, I won't ask those of you of more than one. Do you realize that only 10% of the world has possession of a car? 10%. That means 90% of the world's population looks at you who get in your car every day as really wealthy. 780 million people in the world don't have access to clean drinking water. 780 million people. That is 3.5 times the population of the United States. This is the reason why 3.4 million people die every day from water-related diseases. And yet you and I are so wealthy we literally could go up to just about any hose bib in our city and successfully drink the water. I won't ask how many don't like how it tastes, <laughs> thereby maybe further revealing our snobbery. Millions of people in this highly advanced world don't even know what it's like to turn on a water source. Any water source and have something come out or to drink. They don't even know what it's like. How wealthy we look to them. How many freshly prepared meals and yummy snacks will you consume today? Over 800 million people will not eat anything today. Even the homeless in America can beg and be fed to fill their bellies every day. Our homeless are more wealthy than 800 million people around the world. The point is, is we are rich. If wealth 
It's to be a source of blessing and not condemnation. It must be used rightly and not hoarded. It must not be used for unjust gain or self-indulgent spending or ruthlessly acquired. How then are we to fight sinful indulgence and steward well what God has entrusted to us? Paul's charge to Timothy shows how God expects us to steward our wealth in fitting contrast to James' admonishment of those who sinfully steward it. Consider with me 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What a passage. Break it down with me briefly as we close. He says we are to do good and be rich in good works. Good works. The good is the Greek word kolos. It means beautiful. The question is when people see your works... Your deeds, do they see the beauty of Christ? Do they say amazing? When we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we will do coloss deeds, beautiful deeds, good works that glorify God, that point people to Jesus. Beautiful works. It says we are to be generous and ready to share. What is generous living? How do we even begin to define that? Well, one of the places I often encourage people to go is to just look at Christ. Look at the generosity of Jesus' life. Look at His sacrifice. How do you know that you're giving generously? Well, for one, it costs you something. Something's different about your lifestyle. It begins to change your lifestyle. You feel it. There's things you don't do. There's things you go without. As we let Christ live in and through us, the outpouring of Him will mean my generosity will look to the cross as a standard of what to give. To stop at the Old Testament law of a tithe is short-sighted. But to look to Jesus, to generously press out what we've been entrusted with, for the expansion of God's kingdom and the good of others. The eternal good of others. I believe if you are a faithfully, fully devoted follower of Jesus, you are not, if you are looking for a minimum of what to give, your giving is already from a heart that is more about what you can keep than how you can be a blessing to do God's good work. how we can honor him, the one to whom it ultimately belongs. Where is your treasure? 
If Christ is my treasure, if I'm alive in him, if Jesus is life, then I am full. We have to begin here. Then, and only then, will there be an overflow of generosity, a change in lifestyle and habits. Paul says we thus store up treasure for ourselves and as a good foundation for the future that we may take hold of that which is life. Truly life. Jesus taught us the way of true life is narrow. It's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because if I'm still finding my identity and my hope and all of my treasures, I won't, I won't fit in the narrow path. That's why the wide path to destruction is broad for all of our idolatry, all of our treasures, all of our false identity and the temporary things that we cling to. Why is it hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Because he wants to have his own kingdom now. And if it means being generous and living for God's glory and fame, then he might pass. Here's the true test. Many of us who are wealthy, gifted, healthy people have said yes to Jesus' invitation to feast. But we've come with our arms so full of this world that we have no time to help anyone else. Because we're really busy building our kingdoms and going on our vacations and cleaning our nice cars. Some who claim Jesus is Lord don't live as though He truly is their Lord. They live with their arms full of the world. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus is enough, if Jesus is really their prize. I wonder if they'll even fit through the door. Praise God that Jesus is the door. That it's by none of my good deeds that I'm saved. This is our only hope. But hear me today, church. When the gospel says, when the gospel takes hold of you, we will set down the treasures of the world. We will, we will hold them differently. Be thankful and faithful managers of God's provisions for God's purposes. And in doing so, take hold of life, that which is truly life. Our lifestyle should be one of holy moderation. It's not that we can't enjoy nice things. Again, don't, don't judge people who have nice things as, as if some kind of the, the poverty gospel is the way of the righteous. That's a wrong perception. There is a way to enjoy nice things. But do we do so in moderation? That shows that God is our prize, our true treasure, not ourselves, not our stuffs, not our stuff. That you're willing to let it go, that you're not broken when it fails you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, let your reasonable moderation, let your reasonableness, that, that means moderation, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. <clears throat> Don't forget the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Wealth is nice. Nice things and, and experiences can be a true blessing from God. But in the end, it all falls short compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Father, I pray. I pray for our heart's digestion of these things. I pray for the good news of the gospel that, that gets to free us from our enslavement of producing and working and keeping up. I, I pray that that there would be a, a fresh grip, a, an opportunity for new priorities and, and new ways of earning and spending and, and new ways of using our days and our weeks and our evenings for your purposes. That this body of Christ you've called us to, to, to serve, to give to, to, to be a participant and to be discipled and make disciples is a critical part of why you've continued our days. That we would not hold it lightly, that we would not treat it as routine, but it would receive a true and worthy investment. That if we are guilty of being like those who were admonished in this passage, that we would repent and trust Jesus. That we would be firmly on, built on the rock. That when the waves and the storms rage, while the temporary around us may fail, our rock will uphold. Our identity, our hope, our peace, our joy will be steadfast. And our future in glory with you so much greater than anything we know. Hear us, Lord, as we worship you, as we acknowledge you, as we submit ourselves to you, as we move into this new year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.